continuing the Gospel of Mark, Mark chapter 8, verses 31 to 38. It will be on the screen, or you can look at it. Uh, this is the ESV we're reading from. Uh, so verse, uh, I'm actually starting at verse 27, by the way. I'm preaching from 31, but I'm, just to give context, I'm reading from verse 27. Uh, and Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi, And on the way, he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist. And others say, Elijah, and others, one of the prophets. And he asked them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, as ever, you are the Christ. And Jesus strictly charged them to tell no one about him. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. That means there was nothing ambiguous about it. It was just spelt it out. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and see his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God but on the things of men. And calling the crowd to him with the disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. As usual, I've given myself uh, three points to hang my comments on. First, the teaching of Jesus. Next, what's on your mind. And thirdly, taking up our cross. First, the teaching of Jesus. As we read through the Gospels, we see over and over again Jesus teaching sometimes the crowd, sometimes just the disciples, and sometimes both groups. And this is one of the time when he did the disciples and then both groups. I've had about eight weeks out when I've been feeding my soul on the truth of God's Word. It's been an adventure. It's been a joy. I've I've been able to read primarily the Bible, listen to teaching, But overall, I've just enjoyed God. And I'm more convinced than ever of the need of, the vital need to study and understand the Word of God. What the whole of Scripture teaches. And and I just want to push Word Plus again. If you you want to grow in God, and you don't, you say, I don't really know how to handle about this, is a great place to start. It's not too onerous, it's straightforward, it's good fun. It's a lot of, you, you get preached at a lot. But actually, it's interactive. And therefore, you get the opportunity to ask questions, to wrestle things through. And uh, it's a great starting point. And I would just encourage you to sign up for it. It's, it's, that's just great. I'm committed to it. And I'm committed to teaching the Bible more and more and more. The Apostle Paul, when writing to Timothy in 2 Timothy 3, 14 to 17, says this to him. He says, but as for you, continue in what you've learned and have become and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from from childhood you've been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is breathed out by God. 
Hear that? All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God and the woman of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. When Jesus was being tempted of the devil in the wilderness, do you remember? He, he counted each temptation with the words, It is written. The Scripture is power. It is written. He was referring, of course, to the Old Testament Scriptures at that point. And in Matthew 4, verses 3 and 4, we read this. And the tempter, that's the devil, came to him and said, If you're the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. We don't live by anything except the Word of God. Yeah, we need food. We need uh, bread. Hallelujah for bread and food and all of those things. But actually, that, that's very uh, mundane and ordinary. It's the, it's, the, it's the mouth, that which comes from the Word of God, the mouth of God, that which God speaks. Where do we find what God speaks? In the Bible. All of the Bible. In Matthew 28, 16 to 20, we have what's called the Great Commission. And I've mentioned it a few times, and I'm going to repeat it again. And don't make any apology for that. It's vital to, to read and understand the Bible and see what it says. And Jesus, he's been crucified, he's risen from the dead, and is now appearing to his disciples. And we read, he says that the 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain which Jesus directed them, and they saw him and they worshipped him. This is the risen Christ. They're going, Wow! Okay, you, you are alive. Uh, it's amazing. And Jesus comes to them and he says, all authority in heaven and on earth is being given to me. That means he's the boss. He's the boss. All authority in heaven and on earth is being given to him, given to him by God the Father. Okay? So Jesus is, is, the, is now all authority. He's the boss of everything. It's pretty awesome. It's being given to him and he, he says, now you go. Therefore, go, make disciples of all nations. What's he doing? He's giving us his authority and saying, right, I give you the authority to go and make disciples of all nations on this planet. That's your commission. That's what the church is here for. Otherwise, we may as well wrap it all up and just go to, in, 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 into the next phase. But he said, no, I, I commission you as the church of Jesus Christ to go into all the world, to every people group, to your next door neighbor, into the workplace. I commission you to go and to make disciples of every nation, wherever you find yourself, wherever you go. All nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And that's great, but the next bit has been leaping out at me for the last few years, teaching them to obey all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Now, the word translated obey, until I've been on, uh, I had time to study, the, the, the word translated obey is an interesting Greek word, which I won't try and, and, and say because I'd get it wrong. But it, we translate it obey, uh, other translations, the, the authorized has it observe. Uh, but actually, what it, 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 it's not an easy one to translate, but it means to keep it, to apply it, to live by it, and protect it. it it's not just obey it, 
You see, what happens is we want to live by the teaching of Jesus, but we want to change the teaching to suit us. And there's no way in the Bible we get permission to do that. We are to live by the teaching of Jesus unambiguously and straightforward. And we are to, very important that we protect the word of God. What I mean, God can do it himself, but we don't let ourselves deviate from that. We're to teach people to take the word and obey it, apply it into their lives. That's part of the commission. That's part of what we're called to. Yeah? And that doesn't always make us popular. People, I, I remember years ago, I was, I was doing a pre, I think it was at Woodside, David Devnish's place, and I was saying, you know, people love, love our social action. They love us for all the things we do, but they don't like us for the things we say. You can't tell me I'm wrong. You can't tell me I'm a sinner. You can't tell me that's wrong because anything I choose I can do. And I say, I'm not telling you, but God is. You see, the Word of God confronts, and it confronts us. It confronts new Christians and said, come on now, I want you to learn to live my way. Does that sound heavy? Well, what Jesus is saying is to, obviously, to make disciples, we need to see people born again of the Holy Spirit. But it's also very important to show people how to live by the teaching of the Word of God. Because when we're born again, we're born into a kingdom where he rules and reigns. We're born into a kingdom. We, we, we couldn't come into the kingdom because of our sin. Now we come right into a kingdom where he is Lord, and it's our privilege and our delight to live under his lordship. That's what it means to be saved. It's not like, oh, I've got saved and I can do as I like. No, I've got saved and now I've come into his rule and reign and my sin allows me to live in it. Before my sin prevented me. Before my sin got in the way. God said, do this, and it confronted me. I couldn't, I couldn't, I couldn't get over what was inside. But, you know, uh, Sarush came and said, it is finished. Jesus broke the power of sin. He forgave it once for all time. Sin and shame is gone. And now the power of sin in me is broken. It has no place. It doesn't have rule in my life. Jesus now has rule in my life. And so we can learn to live more and more and more according to his word, according to his will. Not like, oh, this is terrible, but this is where joy is found. This is where liberty is. This is where freedom is. This is what I was made for to live under the rule and reign of God. It's where life is found. So living in the kingdom, to live in the kingdom is to live in obedience to the king. The Apostle Paul writes in Romans chapter 1, verse 5, through him, through Jesus, we receive grace and apostleship to call all the Gentiles, that's us, to the obedience that comes from faith for his name's sake. You see, when, when, you, when, you, when you try to make a child obedient, have you ever tried to make a child obedient? I, I imagine Simon was always obedient. Not. Right. But have you ever tried? You know, now, you will do as I'm told. As you're told. Yes, of course. As soon as you've gone, they'll do their own thing. Yeah? That's the nature of sin, isn't it? But actually, there's no joy in that. All it does is get you into trouble. It's the nature of law. You can't do that. You know, if somebody says, don't step on the grass, 
You know what I always do? It's just just one foot. That's the nature of law. Can't do it. Yeah, I'll just give it a little try. No, law is gone. Jesus fulfills the law. What we're talking about now is not a set of rules. What we're talking now is grace upon grace upon grace that comes from God that enables us to live under his rule and his lordship gladly and freely and willingly with joy and say, yes, wow, I was made for this. I was made to walk with God. I was made to obey him. It's not onerous. It's freeing. It's delightful. Why don't go on about that? Because we live in a world where the truth of Scripture is increasingly being eroded. Even in evangelical circles. We're told that we've moved away beyond such things, that we should adapt, the church should adapt to the culture. We increasingly want to pick and choose the bits of the Bible that suit us and the bits that we think are either right or wrong. We'll, we'll juggle it around. That is not the Christian life. The Christian life starts with a cross that put the Son of God there to die. That's the Christian life. It starts there. That's what sin does. That's what my opinion does. That's what your opinion does. That's what the world's wisdom does. It produces a cross with the Son of God on it, dripping out his blood as a sacrifice for you and me. That's what it does. And all the wisdom of the world and how clever we are and we're trying to accommodate this person and that person, that's not, that, that just puts more nails in the cross. We're crucifying him all over again if we think we can go that route. No, no, we start with the cross and then we step into freedom and life and liberty and joy and we model something different from this world. We model a new life, a new kingdom, a new rule, a new society where Jesus is king and the church are filled with joy. That's what we're about. That's why I'm passionate about this and will remain so. Right to my first point. Now let's get on with the text. What's on your mind? You might be thinking, I wish he'd shut up. That might be on your mind, but that's not the question. Jesus starts to teach the disciples about the cross, that he must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. He tells them plainly, he's explaining it. It's not ambiguous, it's not a parable. They said, guys, this is what's going to happen. Let me spell it out to you. But Peter isn't happy. As ever, Peter knows best. Isn't happy. Jesus, could you have just just a minute? Come come over here. Need to have a word in your ear. Lord, don't you're wrong. (laughs) Oh, okay, am I? You're wrong. That what you've just said can't be true. We know who you are now. You just said, and we just said that you are Christ the Messiah. You're the King. Do you remember we said that? And and you you just said, yeah. Yeah, don't tell anybody. And now you're telling us you're going to die. That doesn't make any sense. You're wrong, Jesus. And Jesus' response must have come as a bit of a shock to Peter. Because Jesus kind of just lays into him a bit. You know, we think, oh, Jesus is always nice. This isn't very nice at all. 
And he does it publicly. He doesn't even do it privately. He sort of says, right in front of the other disciples, he says, get behind me, Satan. Pardon? Lord, I'm, I'm your friend. Get behind me, Satan. For you, you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. So he says to him, you've got it wrong, Peter, because you're thinking wrong. You've got... You're thinking the world's way. You just had a revelation of who I am. I speak truth to you. You think that can't be true. Poor Peter. He's always the one who cops it, but then he's always the one who opens his mouth. Why does Jesus rebuke, rebuke Peter publicly, I wonder? I think it's because error, wrong thinking, and wrong belief need confronting. Does it matter what we believe? Yes, it does. And God will confront it if we're wrong. We need Jesus to confront our wrong thinking. We need Jesus to confront our wrong values, wrong assumptions, and wrong behavior. And he does that with his word. He says, read this. How's your Bible reading, by the way? I have a dear friend who, I've talked about him before, but I've just been having a bit of dialogue with him on email um, about the gospel. And he sent me an email saying, I, I remember in 1974 you gave me a Bible. And he said, I've always treasured that. And he said, I have a special place for it in my bookshelf. <laughs> and I, I replied saying, great, but you know what? I... I doesn't belong in a bookshelf. has to be read. Interesting dialogue going on with him right now. Pray for him. His name's Graham. I'm, I've, God's doing something wonderful, I think. How's our thinking? How's your reading of the Bible? How's our thinking? Do we have in mind the things of God? Is our mind in line with what God says in his word? Or is our mind filled with the values of our world that increasingly lead to destruction and misery. See, the TV all the time is pumping out stuff that contradicts the Word of God. All the time. All the time. All the values of the world now are... Contra- not the values of God's Word, but the values of the world are shaping our society, and what, watch, it's falling apart. It's increasingly falling apart. We live in a very, very volatile world right now. The Apostle Paul says to us in Romans 12, verse 2, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that by testing you may discern what the will of God is, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Very important. We feed, we learn, We get our values from the Word of God, not from society, not from the world, not even from the educators, not even from Shakespeare. You know, we go, oh, no, no, don't elevate any of those. Just elevate the Word of God to the number one priority in your life, which shapes our thinking, sets our value base. That's what the church stands on, the Word of God. We don't live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God.
We stand on it. It's reliable. It's assured. It won't change. It doesn't, God doesn't change his mind. He doesn't go, oh, I've changed. It's not any, I, won't, I won't teach that anymore because you've moved on. No, we haven't. The word of God remains. It stands for all time, even for eternity. So are we feeding our minds on God's word? Is it the bread we live by? So I ask you this morning, what's on your mind? The things and ways of God or the things and ways of this world? One leads to life, the other leads to destruction. And finally, my last point, taking up our cross. Now Jesus calls the crowds that bit before Jesus talking just to the disciples, explaining what's going to happen to him. Now he invites the crowds to join, and he begins to explain what it means to follow him. If anyone would come after me, follow after me, if anyone's really going to do it, then let him deny himself, herself, and take up their cross and follow me. What's all that about? What is taking about a cross and following Jesus? Well, it, it simply means rather than living for ourselves, we live for the glory of God. Rather than giving time and energy to making a name for ourselves, it's about us giving our time and energy to making his name famous. We live in a world that pushes ambition. We're taught to set goals of achievement. See if you can make it. Try and be better. Do better. Get qualified. Do this. We're taught to achieve, to work at becoming famous, as I said, to make a name for ourselves, to make lots of money, to be the best. All that stuff is about self-aggrandizement. And it's totally contrary to following Jesus. Now, I'm not despising good education, all of that's good, but what motivates it matters. I'm always so grateful for Christian parents. Because, you know, my mom and dad were Salvation Army officers, well retired now at 92 and still trucking on. But I went to school and they said to me, all we want you to do is your best. We just want you to do your best. We won't measure you against other people. We just want you to do your best. And during my childhood, my school years, I had at least six schools, probably more, because my parents were Salvation Army officers, and every few years we got moved on from here to there to somewhere else. And I was always the new boy at school, always struggling to, to fit in. You know, that sense of embarrassment when you're the new boy. And anybody ever been and arrived and you're the new one? And you, and you go, and you feel everybody's looking at you thinking, what idiot we got here. Do, you know, that's... It's how you feel. I, I had that many times. And I, I, you know, my, the, was there a cost to, for them following Jesus? Yeah, I paid part of the price because my education was changed. But you know what? All the way through, you're trusting God, and God fulfills his purposes in the midst of less than ideal circumstances. And that's the need. Do your best. Put him first. Always grateful for my, my mom and dad doing that. I, I always felt loved and approved of. However, However, I came in the pecking order of achievement. So important. So important.
Why does Jesus tell us to take up our cross? Because the cross of Jesus cuts right to the heart of self. The cross cuts right to the heart of self. Self Self-centeredness is sin. Before we were born again, we were self-centered. We think about everything in the context of how it affects me, my dreams, my ambitions, my preferences, what I like, what I don't like. But Jesus says, if anyone would follow me, we need to learn to live by, live a, a God-centered life. It's not about me anymore, it's about him. It's about his will, his glory, his honor, his purpose. And we worship and we adore. And you know what it says? As you give up things, as you sacrifice things, even in this life, he said, it will be given back to you a hundred times. You can't lose with God, you see. You can't lose. My mom and dad, I'm so grateful that they set out trusting God, and it was very difficult at times. You know what? My brother and I and our children are all born again. My brother's a Baptist minister. We just, my son is part of the church I was at, part of the leadership there. You trust God with your family. You trust God. The, the, the life of discipleship, the life of taking up your cross and following says, God, this is risky, but I will do it and trust you with the outcome. It absolutely has to be lived out. I'm so grateful to God for it. Jesus wants us to learn, wants, to, wants us to learn how to live a God-centered life. How do we do that? Do you remember in the Garden of Gethsemane when Jesus was wrestling in prayer? He looked, as he looked forward to the crucifixion. And as he's wrestling in prayer, we're told that his sweat came as drops of blood. This was emotional pain of the highest order. He understood what was coming he, to be made sin, to take your sin and my sin and go to the cross. He, he understood the cost, and he's facing it. It didn't take him by surprise. He faced it. And he's in agony of prayer and saying, Father, Matthew 26, 39, Father, if, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. I don't really want to do this. I, 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 I dread this. There's no sense of I want to do this. It's like, I, I don't want to do this, Father. But, nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. To follow Jesus is to put Jesus and his will right at the center of our lives. Not my will, Lord. Not my dreams. Not my ambitions. Not my plans but your will, your dreams for my life, your plans for my life. Let that be done. And then Jesus goes on, and he says, for whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. I think Jesus here may well be talking about martyrdom, actually. Certainly history has it that all the disciples but one died for their faith. Are we all called to martyrdom? Not all, hallelujah. (laughs) But some may be. 
what we are all called to do is to deny ourselves and take up our cross and to live for his glory and for his honor, whatever the cost. When the world's telling us you're being stupid, look what you've turned away from. When Jean and I were leaving Milton Keynes to, to move to Bedford to the church, to take on the church there, people in the church were saying, haven't got the faith to do what you're doing. It's only 20 miles up the road. Couldn't do what you're doing to sell your home and everything to move on. And we're going, but God said. I said, oh, yeah, but oh, we couldn't do that. And I, I'm like, praise God for my Salvation Army history where we moved on every few years. You just have to hold it lightly. And so we moved on and thought we'd settled for 15 years. And then God turfed us up and brought us here. Whatever the cost, we follow Jesus. And it's a joy. And then Jesus goes further. What does it profit a man to gain the whole world, yet forfeit his soul? What can a man give in return for his soul? So often at funerals, people play a CD, Frank Sinatra singing, I did it my way. Seriously, it's one of the, if you, if you ask the, the funeral directors, it's one of the top things people do at a funeral. Frank Sinatra singing, I did it my way. And every time I hear that, it just grieves me. Lovely song, lovely tune, but it grieves me in my spirit. What's the point of doing it our way and losing our whole soul for eternity. What's the point when all the while Jesus is inviting us to deny ourselves and rely on him and what he has done? As I was preparing this on Friday, I had like a, a moving picture that came into my mind. And uh, Maybe I'm getting old, but I'm starting to have sometimes dreams. And you know, it says your old men will dream dreams. Well, I'm starting to dream a few, but this wasn't a dream. This was like a, a moving picture in my mind. And I saw a highly successful man standing before the Lord. He must have just died, and he was pointing to all he'd accomplished. It was as though he was pointing to a whole pile of treasures he had accumulated it in accolades that this world had given him. And he was saying to Jesus, look what I did. Look how successful I am. Look at all that I've built up. Look at the prestige I have. The problem was, in my picture, the pile of treasure looked like lumps of lead and stuff you'd find on a rubbish heap. And the accolades became chains around his neck that prevented the man from entering the kingdom of God. So vivid. It was really vivid. And he kept crying out to Jesus, look how I've become, look, look at all I've made of myself. And in my picture, Jesus, with grief and pain in his eyes, held up his hands and showed the man the marks of the nails made by the nails of the, as he was nailed to the cross. And Jesus said to the man, I, I see what you did. You need to look and see what I did. I did it for you. And you thought you could do better. We can't do better. I heard the man say, I heard Jesus say to the man, didn't my word say, what does it profit a man 
if he gains the whole world yet loses his own soul. I can hear screams of remorse and pain as the man was pulled away in his chains from the presence of Jesus. Now, to be honest, I find it uh, rather upsetting. Rather upsetting. It's like, because this is reality. This is a reality for the world. This is a reality for people we know who are building successful people, people doing really well, who are building their their empire and building their life on, on sand that will not stand for eternity. We need to tell people, look what Jesus did. Look what Jesus did. He did it for you. We need to tell people. I'm telling my friend Graham. I prayed long and hard over how to answer his email and sent a long email back spelling out the gospel. Laid it all out and he's gone, wow. I won't go into all the details of that, but something's going on with him. I've prayed for him since he was 19. We're both the same age. My mom and dad have been praying for him for years and years and years and God's at work. I love it. The most important thing for my friend, the most important thing for your friends, your neighbors, your work colleagues, is that they see the wounds of Jesus and they say, I need to repent of my sin. I need a Savior. They desperately need to see that. And we are the people who are to make disciples. We are the people who are to make it known. If we don't make it known, no one else will. It's vital. I always thought I was pretty rubbish as an evangelist really rubbish. I think I still am. But all I know is this. Pray. Live by the word. Take the opportunities to come and see what God will do. And then Jesus goes on, I'm nearly done. For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation Of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father and the holy angels. I remember again, I'm reminiscing a bit, but then I'm allowed at my age. I, I, growing up in a Christian home, and I remember putting my trust in Jesus when I was seven. I knew the gospel, but there was a day called Decision Sunday when I, I put my hand up in response and said, I want to follow Jesus. I remember it still vividly on my knees, kneeling down in the Salvation Army Hall. You know, it's like, first thing I did was go and tell my mom I became a Christian today. But I remember trying to live the Christian life at school. It was so difficult not going along with the crowd. I was such a sensitive child. A bit of sympathy wouldn't hurt at this point. That's well. I was such a sensitive child, and you know what? I still am. Uh, yeah, that's better. That's much better, right? So sensitive. I, I, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, that's enough now. You can move on. But I, I, I you know, trying to, trying to live as a Christian. I'm, I'm, a, I'm born again. I knew what it meant. I, I, and you're there at school with children. And not always going along with the crowd because now I'm a Christian. I won't get involved in that. I was often laughed at for my simple faith, especially when I tried to tell people about Jesus. But interestingly, I was, God reminded me, one of my friends called Jim Caldwell when I was 15, and he'd laughed at me like everybody else. He got soundly saved 
at a, at a, at a meeting, uh, at a brethren meeting. And I, I remember, and then people started to laugh at him too. But it was great. I had, didn't feel I had any hand in that, and yet God saved him, and it was wonderful. Never heard from him ever since I left school, but I remember him well. We get laughed at because we're Christians. We get laughed at as an adult because we're Christians. We get laughed at when you're working in a, in a, in a, a factory or a workplace or an office and, and you know, people start talking about all sorts of rubbish and start talking about the nature of life and the universe without God and you think, oh, excuse me, it's very difficult for me to keep my mouth shut right now because I need to tell you you're wrong. And you get, you get pilloried and you get laughed at and, and all of that. And I, I remember, I may have told you this story, I remember when people were having this debate about evolution and all that tripe and or the standing around in my soundproof room where I worked because they kept coming. And there's about seven of them. And in the end, I just said, look, enough. I said, forget all that for a minute. You need to know Jesus. He's the Son of God. You need to know him for yourself. And literally every one of them went, whoa, whoa, what's that? I remember doing it and thinking, oh, Lord, what have I done? And, and <laughs> but one of them got saved, and he's still going on with God. You see, this is our life. This, this is our calling to live for Jesus. That's, that's what we live for. You have a mission field. I have a mission field. My next door neighbor is part of the mission. You all have a mission field. And while you don't want to be going and pestering everybody, you want to be good employees. You want to be good work colleagues. You want to be good friends. You don't go along pestering everybody to death. But what you do do is you stand up for Jesus when you get the chance. And God does the rest, I've discovered. I didn't always get it right. But one thing I'm sure of Ever since I was seven, I have never been ashamed of Jesus. Never, ever been ashamed of Jesus. Embarrassed to call myself a Christian? Oh, yes. Oh, you know that moment when you cringe and you think, oh, do you ever do that? Maybe I was just too sensitive, but that's, you know. Yeah, I felt like that at times. <laughs> yes, there were times when I wanted to run away and hide, but I've never been ashamed of Jesus. Please. Never be ashamed of Jesus. He's your Lord. He's your Savior. He's the King. And He loves you with an everlasting love. In my youth, we used to sing... I see, there's a lot of reminiscing. Tell I've been away for a while. Um, We used to sing an old hymn, and the first verse says this, which will come on the screen now. Stand up, stand up for Jesus, you soldiers of the cross. Anybody know this? Yeah, see, some of you. Lift high his royal banner, it must not suffer loss. From victory unto victory, his army he shall lead till every foe is vanquished and Christ is Lord indeed. Hallelujah. I want to make a plea. Whatever our age, whatever stage we're at, live for Jesus. You might feel you're rubbish at it, You might struggle with temptation. You might fall over 150 times. But there's grace for you to live for Jesus. There's such joy in taking up our cross and following him, whatever it means. We follow him not under law, not because there's any sense of threat, but because he's won us with love. And we love him. We love him. I've got to say, after eight weeks out, I love him 
even more than I did before the AIDS. And long may that continue. Also, I have a, another hymn in my mind, and we're going to finish with this, and I'm going to read it to you. It, the hymn, as I was preparing, it kept going through my head, and it was beneath the cross of Jesus. And I, as I was looking for the words online, I came across some modern words that someone called Keith Getty has written along the same lines as this hymn. And that's, this seemed to fit so well with what I've been talking about this morning and the scripture we're looking at. I thought we'd just take a few minutes, and I'll read them through to you, and then pray, and we're done. Beneath the cross of Jesus, I find a place to stand and wonder at such mercy that calls me as I am. For hands that should discard me hold wounds which tell me come. Beneath the cross of Jesus, my unworthy soul is one. Beneath the cross of Jesus, his family is my own. Once strangers tracing, chasing selfish dreams now won through grace alone. How could I now dishonor the ones that you have loved? Beneath the cross of Jesus, see the children got called by God. Beneath the cross of Jesus, the path before the crown, we follow in his footsteps where promised hope is found. How great the joy before us to be his perfect bride, Beneath the cross of Jesus, we will gladly live our lives. Can we stand, please? The band would like to come back, just as just want to pray for us. Just close our eyes and focus on the Lord for a minute.